This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 14 of Matthew chapter 22. And let's pray for the reading and the preaching of God's Word this morning uh, as we come to it. Father, we do pray that as the Word is read, especially as it is preached, that it would go out in this room and that the gospel would go forth. We pray that we would hear your call in the words. We thank you that this word is living and active, and we pray that you would take this living and active word and apply it to our living and active hearts. And where there is darkness, we pray that you would bring light. Where there is coldness, we pray that you would bring warmth. Where there is a lack of repentance, we pray that you would lead us in repentance. Where there is a lack of righteousness, you would lead us to righteousness. And we would find that as we leave this place, that your Spirit has truly attended to the Word and stirred us and impressed the truth of this Word upon us. We don't want to leave this place without that happening, Lord. So please hear us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to give you the three points right at the beginning this morning. Three points in the sermon. The folly of men on display and the rejection of God's invitation. The folly of men on display and the rejection of God's invitation. 
Second, the goodness of God on display in inviting all. The goodness of God on display in inviting all. And finally, the provision of God on display in the eternal attire of His people. The provision of God on display in the eternal attire of His people. I read a story this week. A woman had put this online. She was reflecting back on her life and she was telling her story of when she was a small child and a little girl. She said that as a little girl, she only had one birthday party her entire time growing up. And she said that was due to her parents not having a lot of money. They were a family of low income. But on her 10th birthday, her parents decided that they wanted to throw her a birthday party. And so this girl, she made a list of who to invite to her birthday party. She didn't really have any friends per se in the school that she went to, no close friends at least. And so she decided both because of that and also because she said she wanted to be fair to everyone, she invited her entire class to her birthday party. And so her parents rented a room in the local bowling alley, and they rented some of the lanes at the bowling alley, and they ordered pizza, and they made a cake, and she and her mom spent hours creating these giveaway bags that they would give to all of the children that would come to the birthday party. And the day of her birthday arrived, and they went to the bowling alley and they showed up with their pizza and their party favors, and not a single child showed up. That's heart-wrenching. She went on to say that her mother went into the school on the next day because she had heard rumors on why that might have been. And she sat down with the principal, and the principal made some phone calls and confirmed that indeed the story that the mother had heard was true. That one of the moms of one of the children in her class had called all of the other parents in the class and had convinced them that this family was dangerous. That they shouldn't allow their children to be with that family because that family was a low-income family and all of them were upper-middle-class and upper-class families. That don't make you downright angry reading that. Jesus gives us the parable of the wedding feast this morning. He says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And this king sends out servants with this invitation for those who had already been invited to this feast. This is not a, a little girl's invitation in the parable. This is the invitation of their king. And if a little girl invites you to her birthday party, you should go. The little girl in this church invited me to her birthday party. I go. Everyone. I can do tea parties. I'm, I'm a mean craft maker when I put my mind to it. But if your king invites you, there's not even a doubt. You go. But he sends out his servants and they go on behalf of the king's invitation and no one comes. 
But this king, he is incredibly patient and he is long-suffering. And so he sends out more servants with the same invitation to call the people. Still, no one comes. The offer is rejected. There's a context that Jesus is telling this parable in. If you will look with me at the end of chapter 21, Remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It ends in this way in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And you remember the two parables that Jesus told in chapter 21. He told two parables, and they were aimed at Israel and aimed at the leaders of Israel. The one being aimed at them, saying that a father came to his sons, and to the one son he told them to go out into the vineyard, and that son said, I'll go, I'll work. But then he went out and he did nothing. And Jesus says, you Israel and you leaders are like that. The second parable is even more devastating. It is the parable of the vineyard owner, where that vineyard owner, he buys the land and he creates a vineyard and he puts a wall around it and then he leases it out to some tenants and he goes off to a distant land. And when he goes back to that distant land and the time of harvest comes, then he sends his servant to go and to reap some of the harvest from his tenants. But the tenants refuse to give what is due to the owner. And so he sends more servants, and some of them they beat, and some of them they kill. And so the owner thinks, well, I'll send my son. They'll honor my son. And so he sends his son, and they see him a ways off, and they say, there's the heir. And so they kill the son. Jesus is saying, you Israel and you Israel leaders, you are like that. Now, in this parable, Israel, in particular its leaders, are pictured as those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the king's son. They have been invited, and yet they refuse to come. John, in his gospel, in the very prologue of John's gospel, he summarizes this very well. And in verse 11 of chapter 1 there, he says that Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's heart-wrenching. It's the folly of men on display. Maybe you weren't struck when I was reading through the text this. You, most of you have read through the New Testament numerous times, and you're familiar with these accounts. But I want you to remember this, that when Jesus is telling these parables, He's speaking of His Father that they're rejecting. When He's speaking of the prophets that were sent, and some were stoned, and some were killed. It is He who sent them. When He speaks about the Son that is going to be killed, He's speaking about Himself. When He's speaking about the wedding and this banquet, He's speaking about His own wedding. It's gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching. Matthew doesn't record it as Luke does, but when... Jesus came into Jerusalem and before he goes in and he clears out the temple and he makes that a, a better place. And before he goes into these parables, he is looking out over Jerusalem. And as he looks out upon the city, the city of the kings of Israel, and as he looks upon these people, the Israelite people, he, he begins to weep. It's great compassion. 
Luke says this in Luke 19 as he is looking over them, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't recognize the time. What folly! This is the long-awaited Messiah. The long-expected the Messiah, the long-hoped-for Messiah, He is before them. Everything that they want and they desire is right before them, but they won't receive Him. And so they don't receive all of His benefits. It pains me. I think about this often while I'm watching people or people that I've listened to or people that I've talked with people that I'm praying for, and I think there are so many that what they want is right before them, but they just won't receive it. How many are looking for peace and for love and for joy and for reconciliation and for forgiveness and for hope, for health, for purpose of life? And it's all there in Jesus. receive Him. What's the folly of men? I want you to notice three things about these rejections of the invitation here. First, these people reject the invitation as subjects. When you reject an invitation as a subject, you're rejecting your king. And we are all subjects of God. He is our King. It is no small thing to reject your King. And that is evidence in this parable by the way that the King reacts in response to their rejection. Second, I want you to notice that the people reject the invitation willfully. It's not that they received the judgment and the wrath and the anger of this King because they were unable to come. It's because they would not come. They wouldn't come. They willfully reject Him. Third, I want you to notice that the people, as they reject Him, they reject Him with hostility. Now, there are different degrees to this hostility, but it is all hostility. When the first servant goes out at first and he calls, we simply read in verse 3, they would not come. There's a, a disregard there. The king then sends out other servants, and they come with even more details about the feast. Look, the, the fattened calves have already been slaughtered. The oxen have already been slaughtered. The entire table is prepared. The banquet is ready. The pizza has been ordered. The bowling alley has been rented. There are party favors galore. But we read the second group in verse 5, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. That the first group showed disregard. The second group demonstrated neglect. The third group doesn't even try and hide their hostility. 
They just take these servants and they treat them harshly and they begin to kill them. I think, if I look back over the scriptures and experience in life and look over church history, I think predominantly these are the three main ways that people respond negatively to the invitation of the gospel. Either the invitation is disregarded, it's treated as trivial, or with neglect, they are too busy, or people tend to act in downright hostility towards it. But the reality is that every single one of these is hostile. Because it's an offer of your king. And they show no matter how they are responding to him in the negative here, they have rejected the invitation and they're showing no respect for their king and nor fear of their king. And it's folly. And the king is angry as a result. He sends his troops and they destroy the people and they level the city. That's here, then I think you get to this point and you think, well, here the parable ends. It's like an ending they've rejected. He has now brought his anger and wrath to bear upon them, but it doesn't. Because the king's plans can't be thwarted, the rejection of some does not stop the celebration, and so he invites others. And this is our second point this morning, the goodness of God on display inviting all. The goodness of God on display in inviting all. This is a generous king. And this is a gracious king. King. So he sends his servant to gather others. They gathered, quote, all those they found, Jesus says, both the good and the bad. And the wedding party was filled with guests. Why? Because the father will not allow there to be an empty seat at his son's banqueting table. And this is his son's banqueting table. Every seat will be filled. Matthew 24 Jesus will speak about that when He speaks about the angels and gathering the elect. And He says they will gather the elect, gather from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In Revelation 19, we get this beautiful scene of the multitude of people that have been purchased by the blood of Christ that are now gathered together from one end of heaven to the other, and this song erupts from them in the midst of this Lamb that was slain for them. And they sing, Hallelujah! The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And then they sing this, Blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. They're there. All those who were chosen are there. That's what Jesus says, closing the parable. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Those who actually come are those who were actually chosen. The word chosen presses home that God, as the king in this parable, he's not surprised by the rejection that some have to his invitation. 
He is king over all, or He is king over nothing. God is not only God over creation, but over salvation. He is not only sovereign over trees and birds and the wind and sickness. He is sovereign over our souls. Those who actually come are those who He actually chose. He wasn't surprised. It's not as if God sent His Son into the world to live and to die and to be raised on the third day for the mere possibility that some might receive the invitation of the Gospel and the possibility that some might spend all of eternity with Him. Christ's life and death doesn't make salvation possible. It actually secures it. The wedding feast is going to happen. There will be a bride of Christ on that last day gathered before His throne because He purchased His bride. He could not come in vain. He could not be pierced and whipped in vain. He could not die upon the cross in vain. Jesus doesn't gamble with probabilities and He doesn't deal in potentialities. He accomplishes the salvation of those that He actually came to save. We heard it this morning in that that Gospel reading, that Advent reading in Matthew 1, verse 21. Where that angel appears to, to Mary and Joseph and says to them, You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will. It's not potential salvation, it's guaranteed. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. But here's the question, right? How do you know if you are chosen? Many are called, but few are chosen. How do you know? And as a Christian, as you go out into the world and you evangelize, or as I stand here in this pulpit and I preach, how are we to share that gospel? Who are we to share it with? We don't know who is actually chosen and who isn't. You notice that the servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found. Many are called, but few are chosen. The call goes out to many. God's invitation and the call goes out to all. In theology, we call this the general call or the universal call. And we will attach to it the free offer of the gospel that all are to receive the free offer of the gospel. Every single person, all universally are to be recipients of this gospel, are to hear it and to hear the promise of salvation in Christ to them if they receive Christ. 
everyone. There have been three main errors in response to this doctrine over the centuries. Pelagians who believe that every person has in and of themselves the ability to respond to the gospel, and so there is no real general gospel call to them. Every gospel call is a special call because every person has within themselves the ability just to receive that call. But that denies the fact that God is sovereign over salvation, that you and I are tainted with original sin, that we are totally depraved, and that there is no way that we in and of ourselves can save ourselves. No, it must be a work of His grace. The Scriptures are clear. The Arminian view is second, which says, yes, there is a general call. It's clear that there is a general call that is distinct from that saving call or that special call. It's clear that we are to preach the general call to all. And it's clear that there must be a special and saving call because only some people are saved. Not all are saved. But in Arminian mind, they say, well, how is it that God chooses these? Well, God looks down the corridor of time, and as He looks down the corridor of time, He sees that man, or He sees that woman, or He sees that child in the future choosing Him. So He chooses them because they chose Him. And because he saw in the future they would choose him, he chose them in eternity past. But that makes man sovereign. It's his choosing that causes God's choosing. And if man is sovereign, God is not God. He has to be sovereign to be God. The third error, unfortunately, has been in our own circles, in Reformed circles, and hyper-Calvinism. It denies that there is any such thing as the general call of the gospel. It's, they say that the gospel should not be offered to all sinners. Only the elect should receive the gospel call, they believe. And so you and I should be very careful in how we evangelize. And I should not preach as I often preach. I say, come to Christ. They would say, you don't know if they can come to Christ, and it's a false offer. But that is not what we see biblically. It's not in this text or in a host of others. In this text, the invitation goes out, and many reject it. The servants then go out into the roads and gathered all that they found. Jesus underscores this by saying that they gathered both the good and the bad. That is, every type of person. The Bible teaches that though God did not choose every person, He sincerely and truly calls every person to salvation through the gospel. And His goodness is on display in that all are invited. His goodness is on display. In one very real sense, God desires all to be saved. Peter makes that clear. The Lord is not slow about His promise, he says, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God, again, in a very real sense, takes no delight in the perishing of the wicked. He says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God's disposition towards sinners is that He desires to see them repent. He desires to see them come to faith in Christ Jesus and seize upon Christ in faith. Again, His goodness in one very real sense is aimed at every single sinner. Calvin himself says as much when he's commenting upon Romans 5.18. He says this, Paul makes grace common to all men, not because it in fact extends to all, but because it is offered to all. Although Christ suffered for the sins of the world and is offered by the goodness of God without distinction to all men, yet not all receive Him. The gospel is to be offered to all people without restraint, without buts and ifs, without any hedging of our proclamation. It's to be offered to all without discrimination. As we do, we see the goodness of God in it. We don't know what we don't know. You know, we know God's revealed will. We know that He desires that none should perish. We know that He will save all those that He has chosen. We know that, that is His revealed will. We, we don't know His secret will. We don't know, though, who is chosen and who isn't. So we preached all. We evangelize all. And reflecting upon that moment that Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem there in Luke and He's looking over that city. Calvin has a very interesting phrase that he uses when he's commenting upon it. He, he says that Christ's words there as he is lamenting and as he is crying and weeping over Jerusalem, he says that there is a maternal kindness in those words. Maternal kindness. It's on display. Cornelius Venema, theologian in our day, speaking about Calvin on this, said this. He said, in a manner of speaking, God bears His breast to us in the overtures of the gospel. Through the gospel, God manifests His great goodness, which is similar to a maternal tenderness and kindness expressed toward wayward children who prove unwilling to respond in kind. And then he sums it up this way. Indeed, it is precisely the tender hardness of God's lament in the person of His Son that renders human unbelief in response to the gospel such a monstrous thing. Such maternal kindness weeping, desiring all to repent. And yet they reject it. I confess that there is mystery here. I don't understand it all. 
Does it seem illogical that we would teach God in one sense desires the salvation of all, and yet in another sense He only chooses to give salvation to some or wills to give it to some, maybe? The Scriptures clearly teach both. They teach both the free offer of the gospel to all and God's unconditional election of some. And we must understand that in the purposes of God, there is a harmony. His will is never in contradiction with itself. Now, I can't explain it all in detail. I don't understand how it all goes together. I just know that it does. Because both are clear in the Scriptures. How is it that He desires the salvation of all, and yet He only wills the salvation of some? How is it that you put together divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I, I don't know every way that those go together, but I know that they are two strong pillars that come forth from the Scriptures and they, if you will, go above the clouds and in the heavens they somehow come together in unity without any kind of contradiction. There's no contradiction in the heavens. He desires all to come to some, but only wills to choose some who actually will. Some of you may sit here this morning and say, well, it causes me great consternation, anxiety. Because I, I don't know if I'm chosen. How do I know if I'm chosen? No one is saved by believing that they are elect, or not saved by believing that they're non-elect. So how do you receive Christ and enjoy Him and all these benefits? Jesus makes it very clear at the end of this parable. Again, it feels like the parable should be over. You have it the first time where the message goes out, they reject and the king, picturing God the Father, exercises his anger and his wrath upon them. You think, ah, oh, it's over. Oh, no, there's another scene. He's now going to invite others and he's going to fill the banquet hall. It's now Phil. Feels like it should be over. No, it's not over. There's now one that has entered the banqueting hall, this wedding feast, and is not clothed properly. And Jesus makes it clear here at the end of the parable he has one last point. You must be clothed properly. You must be clothed with His righteousness. How do you enter into eternal salvation? By simply looking to Christ alone and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. And His righteousness is your righteousness. I remember sitting in a Sunday school class a, a couple of decades ago now, and the Sunday school teacher got up and was sharing evangelism explosion, EE, some of you know. And I remember asked the first two questions and had us write on a piece of paper our answer to the first two questions. And I remember Leah asking me on the way home what I had given as the answer to my second question, and it was a horrific answer. It was wrong. 
And my new dear wife was schooling me in the gospel. Jason, you haven't understood. There's that first question of E.E. Have you come to the place in your life where you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? Good question. Good question to wrestle with. If you died right now, this moment, you didn't even make it out of the sanctuary this morning, didn't even get to hang up online this morning, didn't get to walk out of the fellowship hall this morning, and you died. It's possible. Do you know you'd be in heaven? Got to wrestle with that. If the answer is yes, then the second question in the evangelism explosion is this. If you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my, my heaven, what would be your answer? What's your answer? Our final point, the provision of God on display in the eternal attire of His people Jesus closes the parable with this man at this wedding banquet clothed in the wrong garments and he hears this kind of question, an E type question, why should I let you into my heaven? But here it is, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man, he has no answer. He's absolutely speechless. And why is he speechless? Because he knows that he is guilty. He knows it. And he knows that he has no answer. There's nothing that he can say. There is no rejoinder he can give. There is no speech he can make. There is nothing he can point to. He is arrayed in the wrong clothes and he's guilty. And on that last day, those not arrayed in the only acceptable wedding garment will stand there knowing that they were guilty. None will plead, but I wasn't elect. They will know that they willfully and in hostility did not receive the invitation of their king. Everyone. They will not be able to plead anything else. The only acceptable answer will come from those who are dressed rightly. And when asked, when we stand there in glory, we will not point to ourselves, we will point to another. And we'll say, I'm not worthy to be here. Don't accept me based upon me, but I'm with him. I'm with that one. Your son, who you sent into this world, who lived a perfectly righteous life, who died upon the cross in substitution for me, who went into the grave and was buried for three days for me, who rose from the grave after three days and ascended into heaven for me. 
I am a member of His bride. And look at me. I'm clothed in His righteousness. I have nothing to boast in. Christ crucified for me. And He will welcome you in. Say, ah, take your seat at this feasting table. It's interesting there in Revelation 7. John is there in the heavens and it's a picture of this feasting table, this table of the marriage of the Lamb with His bride. John hears the question, who are those clothed in white robes and from where do they come? And then an answer comes from one of the elders. And that elder says, they have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that doesn't make logical sense either. How do you wash something in the blood of a lamb and it comes out white? But it makes perfect sense there. And it will for all of eternity. Do you have this answer today? A question for you. Have you seized upon Christ alone and faith alone for your salvation? Do you know that when you appear in glory that you're welcome? You have no hesitation. You're welcome because you belong to Him. If not, you don't have to get your life in order first. He came to call sinners. You can't somehow get right with Him any other way. All you can do is just look to Him and plead for Christ. Say, give me Christ. That's it. And you receive Christ. That's it. Just receive Christ. That's simple. For those of you that have received Christ, count yourself as a Christian. Oh, struggle with doubts from time to time. Is that blood shed for me? Am I loved by Him? Am I a member of His bride? Yet to keep reminding yourselves that it's purely of His grace. He chooses His. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you are His. No matter how many merit badges you can display as a good boy scout and say, look, I've been doing this and I've been doing this. I've been doing this. No. The only thing you will point to on that last day is the righteousness of Christ. And you'll plead Him before that throne. And He will plead for you before that throne. And so you have to keep reminding yourself daily, weekly, monthly, annually, I'm in Him. He's made me His. And I've made Him mine. And His righteousness is mine forevermore. And you receive that comfort and that peace and that love and that joy and that happiness and that purpose for living and everything else that comes with Him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of Christ our Lord. We're thankful for the gospel call and that in it we see your goodness. And that as we embrace our Savior, we truly experience your goodness in every regard. May you seal it more and more to our minds and our hearts that we might be those who walk according to your purposes who revel in your glory and give you praise for all of eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.